Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! So, Troy and listeners, everybody tuning in to this episode, I am just going to, like, right off the bat tell you, I was this close (laughs) to performing Barbara's monologue word for word as it's performed here in the film that we're about to cover, Night of the Living Dead. I was literally this close to performing it because I, as a teenager... I need you to know, I used that monologue to, like, audition for, for, like, high school theater. Like, I was so obsessed with this film that we're about to cover that I literally would use this woman's, like, panicked breakdown to, like, audition for dramatic theater. And I always got the fucking role. Nobody ever expected it. I mastered it, and I still know it to this fucking day. Because I love this movie so much that it has literally defined... My whole life. My whole fucking life. That's how much I love it, Troy. I mean, I think that anybody who who knows you, who follows you on social media, knows how important this film is to you. And, and for those of them that don't know, I mean, this film is so important to you that you, you your very first feature film, your directorial debut, was a loving homage and reimagining to this particular film wasn't it roger tell the audience about that if they did not know that it, it was it was and you know i was i even i knew that this topic was going to come up a little bit and i decided like we're going to dip into it a bit rebirth but i really want to take a, most of this review to just honor the the majesty that is george romero's 1968 masterpiece night of the night of the living dead that is the title we are covering today I fucking love it. It's my favorite horror movie of all time. Um, and my probably my favorite movie of all time, tied with The Wizard of Oz. Those are my two favorites. Um, I do want to share that regarding Rebirth, you know, it started off as really just my personal learning experience to teach myself the things I wanted to know to be a proper director. I had worked on film sets. I had acted in multiple films up to this point. But I knew I had a passion for working behind the camera. And I knew there are certain areas where I excelled uh, doing that. And so Night of the Living Dead motivated me to create my own kind of fan film at the time, Rebirth, um, which is my re-envisioning of the material. Uh, But that being said, I I think I... um, I, f- I felt like I had to do this. You know, it's one of those things like I, I've always reimagined this movie uh, from a young age, how I would interpret it, how I would re-envision it, how I would restyle it to fit the times. And, and it, it was just a really great creative experience for me because it came from a wealth of knowledge of the material. So uh, I really, I, I would encourage listeners to check out Rebirth because I am proud of it. We made it for a very small budget, much like the feature we're about to talk about. Uh, you know, there was definitely more money than I had. Rebirth was maybe like $10,000 overall. Like it was it was nothing. It was bare bones. But Night of the Living Dead was made for $114,000. Uh, 
Uh, and even then, you know, back in 1968, that was, you know, way more money than it is now, but it was still an independent budget. And I think the, the thing that I'm most excited to discuss with you, Troy, is the influence that this film has had on the indie filmmaker and showing you what you can do with, with a, a small budget and a lot of guts and motivation and determination. Like, you can create something fucking phenomenal. And this movie is, is a testament to that. Yeah, and I think it's going to be a great conversation because this you you know so much about this film. I mean, probably more than 99% of horror fans. I on the other hand, I like the film. I've seen this film many, many, many times. I just I'm not that I don't want to say passionate about it, but I wouldn't rank it among one of my top 10 favorite horror films if I'm being completely honest here. However, I have a lot of respect for the film. I grew up kind of with this film being at the forefront of like me love growing to love the horror genre because my mom would talk fondly about this is night of the living dead was the movie that scared my mom the most of any horror movie she'd ever seen. And she remembers like seeing it in the drive-in theater when she was a kid and how it just traumatized her, particularly the scene and the basement where the, the daughter stabs the mother with that garden trowel. So my mom would constantly talk about how Night of the Living Dead was the scariest movie she'd ever seen. So I do have that kind of fond memory attached to that. But in terms of like knowing a lot of like the production stuff and probably a lot of the stuff that you do, having to have watched this film many, many, many times to to, to homage it with your rebirth. So it'll be a really interesting conversation. Like I said, if I had to rank this, it would definitely be in my top 15. Yeah. No, I hear it. I mean, this movie, it's, you know, if you like zombies, you're going to have, I think, uh, an instant respect for this. If if you're not a zombie fan, I think it's a film that it might take you a few times to really win you over because it's so gritty and it is old. I mean, it's from 1968 and it looks it. It looks dated. To me, it actually looks older than 1968, and I think that's one of the things we'll talk about. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, because if you look at a film like Psycho that was made in 1960, and I know we're comparing kind of apples to oranges with budgets and whatnot, because Psycho had a big studio backing, even though Psycho was pretty low budget itself, but just the overall quality and whatnot of the films, I think I think Night of the Living Dead looks older than than Psycho, for example. There's a lot of um, oh, what's the what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Night of the Living Dead is a rough around the edges in many parts. However, that is part I think of the effectiveness because in many parts of the film, it comes off as being almost documentary like. Yes, yes, that's a huge selling point for it. I think if anything, it if it, it almost feels at times like you're watching something that has almost like a snuff vibe to it. You see that with a lot of these older, like handheld movies. And this film dips into the handheld and I respect it for that. And I, I got to say one thing, cause I don't want to lose it before we jump into actually talking about the film, but it's something you touched on. And I actually like, I want to build off of it. Um, what you mentioned with your mother, same thing for me. My mother always said this is the movie that scared her the most. And my uncle Roger, who I'm named after was their favorite horror movie. And what, drew my interest from a young age is like we had this old VHS box with all of these films in it and it was a wooden box. It was like a chest and you would open it and it smelled like really old and stale because a lot of these VHSs were from like, you know, the eighties when they first started really pumping them out. And it was that one specific VHS cover. It's black and white with the title Night of the Living Dead in red. And you just see some of the zombies, including the one in like the hospital gown 
just like wandering in this field. And it's the, the, the case alone scared the shit out of me. I can still smell the scent of this fucking chest to this day. And it had such an impact on me at, from such a young age. And I finally got to watch it at seven. Like, this was the first horror movie I ever saw exposed to it at age seven. And like, it, man, it fucked me up. For years and years afterwards, I was just drawing constant images of violence and gore. We were talking to priests and talking to therapists. And, and I mean, this movie changed the trajectory of my life. So I, I really wanted to build off what you said about, you know, my parents, my mother introduced me to this film. She found it horrifying and it rubbed off on me because there is something about it I just can't shake. I love it so fucking much. That's exciting. Yeah, that is really cool that your mother had the same sort of um, adoration for the film as mine did. She remembers, like, like I said, she remembers seeing it in the drive in the drive-in theater with her parents when she was a kid. I don't know how old she would have been. Sixty-eight. She was probably oh maybe thirteen or fourteen years old at that point. And I remember she said that after the movie was over, you know, because in the drive-in they used to play double features, and I think Night of the Living Dead was like the first of the double feature that night when she went. And she said she was so terrorized, terrorized, terrified of the film that she literally refused to get out of the car and go to the bathroom because the bathrooms are over by some like wooded area in the drive drive in. <laughs> uh, I mean, I remember her telling me these stories all the time and she would constantly, anytime Night of the Living Dead was on TV, because it used to play on TV quite a bit back in the, much when I was a kid, it used to, she would have to watch it. She would have to watch it. She just, she adored this film. I love that. I love that. And us both being individuals who, I mean, have lost our mothers. And I, I know for me, watching this title is very nostalgic. So that's another watchability factor I have with it. Um, and I'm sure you take something away from it as well. Yeah. And what a, what a great episode to cover for our 85th episode. I yeah. just noticed this will be our 85th episode. And you know what? This is your favorite horror movie of all time. And we're covering it in November. I feel like next month, finally, we are going to cover my favorite horror movie of all time. Yes. Oh, I love. Oh, I know what it is. <laughs> you know what it is. And it's not the 2009 remake either. Although we should just do that one just for shits and giggles. Oh, you mean the 2019 yeah okay because yeah no uh if you want to hear me bitch about something for <laughs> i think i think our audience loves hearing you bitch about stuff uh, yeah yeah if you want to hear me just for an entire two hours just tearing this thing apart we should do it that could be a good time do a back-to-back -back double feature the good one and the shitty one <laughs> but right now we're going to talk about a real good one we are we're talking about a masterpiece one of the most influential whether it's in your top 10 top five what you cannot deny one of the most influential independent horror films ever made period yeah period yeah. i mean romero pretty much developed fathered grandfathered the the whole zombie genre although i like in the film i did i don't know my, my viewing this time i noticed they don't call them zombies in the film they call them ghouls yeah they, they did not start calling them zombies until after the film came out. Yeah, well, yeah definitely. But yeah, we're talking 1968's iconic Night of the Living Dead, directed by the late, great George Romero. You know, he died on my birthday. <laughs> oh, I just Roger. wanted you to know that. I'm sorry. Terrible. <laughs> I was so, I was distraught for days. I just needed Not you to bad. know that. <laughs> But I mean, this this covering this film is sort of like covering the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Scream or if we ever did like Friday the 13th. So many people know this film in and out. So I feel like we just kind of have a loose conversation about it. And, 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 and 
share our thoughts. I, I'm, I'm sure the audience particularly is going to be interested in hearing what you have to say about this film because it has impacted you so much. And, you know, it is an, it is an interesting choice for you to say it's your favorite horror film of all time. You hear people talk about the film all the time, but I really, you know, I don't, haven't run across many people that say it's their favorite. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. I know people out there, they exist that love this film. I see why. I see why. So if the film starts, I, I guess, with the one of the most iconic um, opening scenes in horror, right? You You get introduced to this brother and sister duo, Barbara, played by Judith O'Day, right? And her brother, Johnny, who have just tracked three hours from, I think they're coming from Philadelphia, right? To this cemetery in the outskirts countryside of, of Pennsylvania. And it's a Sunday night and they get, they're getting there at eight. And all I can think about is why the hell, if you knew you had a three hour drive, would you leave at that late in the afternoon? But they even make a comment about that. I guess this time around, because I knew we were covering it for the podcast, I really, really tried to pay attention to like the dialogue and what was being said. Um, because I've, you generally, when you watch this movie, it's just like you're you're watching it for the the zombie carnage and not much paying attention to the actual banter between the characters. At least that's my case because I saw this film again when I was a when I was a kid, so it was just all about taking in the the visuals of the film. So this time around, I really tried to focus on what was being said, and it's. You know, the dynamic between Barbara and Johnny is pretty, I, I feel like even though they're not on um, camera together very long, you kind of get a really good sense of the relationship as brother and sister, right? Oh, yeah. I think the whole, op- I mean, the, the whole opening, to be honest, is, I think, expertly handled. And I think one of these things, uh, one of the things about this indie that stands out is even with a low budget, I think Romero still had a style and a vision. And that trans- uh, translates very clearly here. His style, his approach. And you got, we have to mention the score right from the opening of the oh, film. Oh, my first note, the blare of that score. This is all, this is all stock music, by the way. This is, none of this was actually... Uh, crafted for the film, aside from a few like uh, unique sound flares here and there. For the most part, this is all stock music, and and they actually um, were struggling to finalize the budget enough to be able to afford music. And so, through like a series of like a, a bet that was placed over like a drinking game, where a, a guy said that if if he lost, he would pay for the the um, the full score, so they could afford the score that they wanted. Um, and he lost, so he ended up paying for it, and that's why they ended up getting it. I love the score. I do. I can see you know, now that I did not know that. See, that's a fact that I didn't know. But now that you mention it, you can I, you can tell. I think you can tell because one of my notes is that the score seems um, disjointed at times. It does. It, there are times you can hear it like fade in. You can t- you can hear the transitions like kind of cut into the music aggressively. But for the most part, the score is. It holds up, in my opinion. When it needs to be big and blaring and intense, uh, it, it, it does the job quite well. The moments of suspense are still, in my opinion, my mind, suspenseful. When this movie hits, it hits. Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, I just so I just wanted to point out the score because I do think it is a standout component of the film. It makes the film... It just make, gives the film a much grander feel than what it really is. Because if anything... The indie filmmakers can learn from this particular film, Roger, and we both know this, although, you know, 
we can we can talk about it in, in kind of a, a little bit more depth with our particular films but like an indie filmmaker can learn that you if you have a small budget you got to make the most of what you have and what is really cool about this film if you pay attention to it is there's really only two locations utilized in this entire film and i've mentioned this before but like i've you know after i made party night and mrs claus and stuff i'd get random you know filmmakers quote unquote (laughs) uh people that want to be filmmakers message me on facebook or social media and i'm sure you've had this happen have you where they'll be like oh dude you know i love your films i'd love to collaborate i wrote the script do you want to read it have you had that happen? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've definitely had okay. people reach out about scripts. I sometimes I will. Sometimes I'm like, no, sorry. But what I notice a lot of times is these filmmakers or wannabe filmmakers write these scripts and they are so like broad in their scope. Like they there's there's school settings, there's city settings, there's park settings, there's ocean settings, there's an airplane scene. And I'm like, dude, no, you you are not you're not gonna be able to do that. You're not gonna be able to do that. Tone it down. And that's one thing you can look at this film and be like, they they had a tight budget. They knew they had a tight budget. So what did they do? They kept it very tight into one specific location, mainly that farmhouse. The farmhouse is almost like its own character in this film. Uh, so I really, you know, would use this as an example of if you're an indie filmmaker and you're wanting to shoot your first film and you, you have, a, you have virtually no budget. Okay. Then don't be writing malls and, you know, stadiums and shit into your script. Keep it small, keep it one location, two at the most. And you, you can craft something that is super suspenseful and super claustrophobic. And I think the setting of this film is brilliant because it does get Romero's great at giving you the claustrophobic feel of this tiny farmhouse with the impending doom uh lurking around because there's all those great wide shots of the exterior of the house when they're looking out the windows and the zombies are just kind of shambling and you realize how isolated this place is there's nowhere else to go around it right yeah even and even the way they open the film like the very first shot you see of this car these long shots of this car driving through these very rural uh, like in the hillside roads, you know, with maybe an occasional building far off in the distance. But for the most part, all you're seeing is hills. Like it's a very strategic opening. And so it makes for this whole arrival sequence when they get to the cemetery, you feel like they're in the middle of fucking nowhere. It does feel very uh, desolate. And that just lends to the moment. And I think it was smart of them, you know, now that I think about it, to mention like how late in the day it is that it is Sunday because they have this whole conversation back and forth about how it's so late and Johnny's complaining because he's like, Oh, we're not even going to get back to town until after midnight. So it really gives you this feel and you think about how creepy it is. I don't know if if you've ever, I used to live really close to a cemetery when I was a kid and uh, me and my mom and her neighborhood friend, you know, in the, in the evenings during the summer, they had this thing where they'd go walk up through the cemetery and it's like a three mile walk. We do that. I'd tag along and it would just so happen like every night, you know, we did this, it would be about seven thirty, eight o'clock and you'd be walking through the cemetery and, and the sun's going down and it's getting a little cooler up and it's just super creepy. And I think that that was a really smart way for them to kind of even add more layers to the atmosphere and tension of the opening scene, knowing, oh my God, it's eight o'clock. It's going to be getting dark here very soon. And these, this, this young uh, brother and sister are just in the middle of this random isolated cemetery. And, you know, if they don't hurry their asses up, it's going to get dark. 
Yeah, yeah. I, and I think the thing about this opening that does work so well is, like, you know, when you come into this moment with the, these two siblings, and I got a few things I got to say about these two, uh, but when you come to this moment, it it starts on a very kind of light note in the sense that it's the two of them just bickering. And, like, Johnny's obviously kind of like a, a dick and Barbara's uptight. She's, like, very prim and proper. And you just have this very, like, light, very natural conversation going on. And, and it does have... Like, the performances here are very of the era. Like, yeah. Barbara is very, like, 1960s, like, her delivery of her character, which, you know, when you watch it is part of what makes it feel a bit dated. But one thing I appreciate the fuck out of her character is as this movie slowly proceeds to get more and more uh, terrifying and, and building and swelling and the stakes are getting higher and everyone's realizing their lives are in danger and just how severe the situation is. I feel like the, the, the camera work becomes looser. Uh, it, that, that whole kind of like news feel that you mentioned that you brought up that makes it feel very like in your face and gritty really starts to become the main style of the execution of the film and the performances I think become quite realistic at times like for as as wooden as some of Barbara's dialogue is very of the era when she breaks down at certain points here there is a noticeable difference between who she is when she's calm and collected and who she is after she goes through the trauma that she experiences and I think that's a majority of people and how they would react in this scenario I don't think we'd all be doing as well as we like to think I think there'd be a lot of us who'd be losing our fucking shit and melting down and i just gotta say right now we're gonna be talking about her a lot i have a love for barbara more so than i i would say any horror damsel and i know people think i'm cuckoo bananas and crazy but i think she goes through some fucking awful shit <laughs> and she's allowed to be comatose because i would be too yeah it, it was an interesting choice for them to make with the character to make her so yeah, I mean, she she shuts down quite a bit in the film and the hysterics and whatnot are sometimes, yeah, a little uh, stiff and wooden. But then, yeah, towards the end of the film, when she really gets to have some moments, she is pretty good. You know, I can see, though, why perhaps she is not talked about a lot. <laughs> Uh, as a you know strong female character out of out of a horror film because yeah bless her heart you know no. <laughs> she's memorable we'll leave it at that we'll leave it at that <laughs> she's not strong but she's memorable <laughs> it oftentimes it seems like oh you're watching like a, a, a like a six year old girl trapped in this woman's body that's and, and it's sometimes it gets it's a little jarring it's a little jarring yeah. particularly um with the characters that she's surrounded by because she's surrounded by a lot of strong personalities and she just spends yes. the movie being sitting on the couch muttering to herself as the others are trying to figure out what to do but we will get there i, I like barbara i do like her i you know um yeah we'll have to we'll have <laughs> We'll talk about it. <laughs> we'll talk. We have plenty of time to talk about Barbara. I do have to say also with this whole cemetery sequence, one more thing, because it's such a pivotal moment in the movie. And it's honestly often coming up on top tens of the most, uh, the scariest horror movie scenes of all time, which honestly, this scene specifically, that kind of surprises me because I wouldn't say this is 
the scariest scene, but I do think it's flawlessly executed. And I think one thing to acknowledge about what he does here is the fear that you were talking about earlier of being in a cemetery. Like, why do you think we're scared of cemeteries? Because we associate them with dead things, with death and with corpses. And, you know, the idea of being attacked in a cemetery is always something I think that comes up at night. It's just, there's something ominous about it. And so he literally does hear exactly what everybody is scared of. And that's why this moment works so well. Like the fear becomes the reality in this sequence. Yes, because actually what leads to the whole kind of scene coming to a head the way it does is that Barbara is putting um, a wreath on their father's grave. And Johnny recalls a time when he, when they were kids, they had visited the cemetery and he jumped out behind a tombstone and scared Barbara and his uncle yelled at him for for doing it and he makes the comment is remember how scared you were of this how 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 scared you were of this place and she's like knock it off johnny stop it stop it johnny stop it i mean and he's like oh you're "You're still scared and then he sees you see that um this guy it's off in the distance and he's kind of shambling you know you could right away say okay what's is he drunk i don't know because it's so off in the distance and Johnny sees this. And this is when we get the iconic, iconic, they're coming to get you, Barbara. Look, here comes one of them now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I love it. But like, oh, like what a great setup. And that line, like, you know, I think the reason this scene pops so much is because that line has become something that is, is said amongst people who don't even know the movie, you know, that is a line that is just, it's, it's along the lines of, we must be over the rainbow. <laughs> like, you know, like it's, it is truly, it's gone down as one of the most important lines, not just within horror, but within cinema. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I don't know how many times I've heard someone say this, you know, they're coming to get you, Barbara. And what happens is, is, is poor Barbara, you know, she's like, stop. She's they come together. <laughs> she's walks away and she's like, he'll hear you. <laughs> and as, Poor Barbara walks by this gentleman in a very meek way. He literally grabs her and attacks her. And she, she starts screaming for Johnny to come. Johnny comes and there's a struggle that ensues between Johnny and, and this ghoul. We'll call it a ghoul now. And they have a struggle before Johnny's knocked to the ground and hits his head on a tombstone. This whole sequence, the transition from the very like stylish and... and um elegant cinematography uh, conversationally that was taking place leading up to this to the very handheld um, jarring shaky uh, violent cinematography that hits the moment that Barbara is grabbed stylistically is, is fantastic. I mean, the moment this hits the music, the energy, the tempo, it all just hits at once and it kicks into high gear. And this goes from this kind of like almost lighthearted comedic bantering to a violent attack within, within moments. And these two have no fucking idea what's going on. Like all of a sudden he's forced to defend his sister. Who's just watching on like a goddamn deer in blonde headlights. Like it, 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 it's such a well-executed introduction to the threat at hand. Yeah. Barbara has many moments throughout this film where she watches people be attacked and just sits there wide-eyed although you know her her demise though is 
it's caused by her trying to help somebody. So she was she was right the whole time, just not to fuck with it, just let it be. I, let me tell you one quick story. I do need you to know that when I was in the uh, the sixth grade, my my aunt and my cousins had a Halloween party, and I somehow managed to dress uncannily like Judith O'Day's interpretation of Barbara down to that blonde fall that she's wearing. I had a trench coat. I had a very similar dress. I was a male dressed as Barbara from Night of the Living Dead. And like, I played it off like it was kind of a joke. Um, But like, everyone was like, that's way too obscure (laughs) to to like, to be a joke that any of us are going to get on. So like, I was at this major party with all of these other teenagers that I didn't know looking like a fucking idiot. Um, but God, I was so proud of myself because I loved her so much. So yes, yeah, she is a deer in headlights, <laughs> but I sympathize. Yeah, I I don't mind the character. I I remember like watching it as a kid and recognizing that it probably wasn't a good performance. Um, it is. She's still an iconic character. So she watches this unfold, and she once she sees Johnny fall, she, she gets in the, she runs back to the car, gets in the zombie is, or the ghoul is, is attacking the car, like picks up a, a rock and is trying to break the windows with the, with the rock. And she's able to shift the car into gear. And I think she forgets though, that you're supposed to steer. <laughs> Cause she literally just lets the car swerve off and hit a tree. <laughs> so let me tell you a story. I know about why this happened. So originally, originally she, the car, cause you know, she's, she doesn't have the keys. So eventually the car was just supposed to like get to the bottom of the street and level out. And she was supposed to get out and run. Cause eventually the car just stops rolling. Um, though while they were filming the movie, the car was actually involved in a car accident. Like it got hit. And so they had to come up with a way to play it off. So if you notice for that whole sequence, you only see the one side of the vehicle until it hits the side of the tree. And then you see the damage on it. It was all just to cover up the fact that the, the car had been damaged. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. But she gets able to get out of the car and um, run away. The thing is shambling after her until she comes to a, um, a farmhouse and she gets to the back door, is able to get in the farmhouse. Uh, and there's this cool, like, psycho uh, themed moment where when she gets in and she's, she grabs a knife off the counter and she, she's walking through the house exploring and she gets to one room and you get that musical sting and it fast pushes in on all of the um, taxidermied heads. It definitely reminded me of Psycho. There's a lot to like about this whole chase sequence, in my opinion. Like, we talk about, like, iconic chase scenes, Marilyn Burns, and so forth. But honestly, if we're taking it back, if we're thinking of, like, one of the original chase sequences, this is one of them. I mean, she is pursued, violently pursued, into a random farmhouse and forced to defend herself. And I do think that... It, it's a really well-handled sequence. I mean, the time it takes from the moment she gets in the house, it stops for a moment to breathe, but it's silent. You hear all of the natural sounds outside. Um, and then all of a sudden you get these really great stingers whenever there's a shift in tone. And it just keeps building and building upon itself and layering upon itself. And the fact she's never been in this space before, like you are right there along with her on this journey. So you're seeing everything as she's seeing it. It, it, it unfolds beautifully, in my opinion. It's definitely suspenseful. You know, and the house itself, like I said, is is eerie. It's quiet. It's it's isolated. It looks like it's it looks like it's been lived in, obviously, when she gets inside, but there's nobody 
around. Um, she, you know, does come across the phone and picks it up, but it's not working. And this is when she looks outside and now she sees that there is not just the one out there. There are a couple out there. And I do like the fact that that is a common element that's used throughout this film is like characters, when they get into the farmhouse, they look out the window quite often, but it's every time they look out the window, there's even more of these things (laughs) to the point where by the end of the movie, when they look out the window, it's like they're, they're everywhere. But I, I do like that because we, we as the audience start to realize, okay, so every time they look out, there's going to be more and more. And there is. So she runs upstairs and immediately sees this dead, like skeletonized person at the top of the stairs. It's supposed to be like the, their face got eaten off. But this is yeah. 1968 era makeup. But even for then, it's still, I feel like, pushing some boundaries. It's just, you know... It's a skull with Play-Doh on it, is what it is. But they did the best they fucking could. And the sequence itself is still quite effective. I mean, the effect looks a bit dated, but the sequence is still great. It's a good startle. It's a good jump scare, yeah, because she runs up the stairs, and all of a sudden you get that musical, and you see this this nasty, yeah, clay, Play-Doh'd face. Have you watched any of the versions that are colorized? I have. They don't really blow my skirt up. Um, yeah. I mean, I want if I want Night of the Living Dead, I want it in pure black and white, and I want it gritty. I don't even necessarily want the remastering. Like, what works for this movie, and you kind of touched on this earlier, is how very gritty it is. And moments like this, when she's moving around through all these shadows, because that is something to acknowledge about this film, is the usage of yes. shadow play. Yes. Like, they did some crazy, crazy shit just involving like, you know, paper shapes and lighting to create really dramatic shadows in this. And God, does it translate well because being black and white and being in this like eerie, desolate farmhouse, I mean, you even know where the shadows are coming from, but it makes this place just feel like so haunting. Like this house really is a character. You mentioned that earlier too. This house is pivotal to the story and it being as creepy as it is, is very much a major reason why this film works as well as it does. I would agree. And I do, I love the lighting. I I noticed the use of shadows and I know, you know, there's a lot of people, particularly like a younger audience that is going to have an aversion to watching black and white films. I, uh, there are um, several colorized, different colorized versions of this film. Like I said, I don't know which ones you've watched, but like, so, and some of them like, Barbara's dress is yellow and others they're pink. It's just like they, they take liberties with what they colorized and how they colorized it. So I, I think it definitely loses its effectiveness. If you watched one of the colorized versions of it, I would say definitely if you've you know not seen this film or whatever, and you, but you have, you want to check it out, just do yourself the favor and watch the, the original black and white version. It was filmed in black and white for a reason. And I think that it's definitely to the film's benefit that it is. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a case where the color, you know, film existed decades at this point. They made the choice to film on black and white film. And a lot of that decision was uh, to save cost. I mean, it was honestly just cheaper for them to do so. But I really do feel the black and white lends so much to the overall effect of this film, especially in these moments like the stairwell sequence, you know, coming back full circle, which is flooded with shadows and so very haunting. And it just gives it such a creepy, just really like just gritty, creepy, unsettling vibe. 
Yeah, I was going to say definitely unsettling. Definitely kind of like even like a dirty feel to it because it is, so, you yeah. know, I don't know. Yeah, it's so it's so effective. She runs out of the house. When she sees this body, she immediately darts back down the stairs and runs out of the house onto the porch when she's immediately greeted then with the headlights of a truck. And out comes Ben, who has... His, his truck has run out of gas. He's looking for gas, and he just he, he just happened upon this farmhouse. He he tries to approach Barbara and to talk to her, ask her, you know, do you live here? What's going on? And she's completely silent. So he goes into the house and um, runs upstairs, finds the body that's up there himself. Barbara is just this is the beginning of her <laughs> being comatose for the most of the film. Well, let's first acknowledge very quickly that upon the very first frame that he comes onto screen in this film, Dwayne Jones as Ben is, you know, as much as I love Barbara, I I love love her to death, but he is the rock of this movie. He is so uh, the epitome of, of, of class and poise. Um, He is beautifully depicted. um, So well played. Um, Dwayne Jones, I really think, gives a performance here that should have gotten him more work after this movie. And not just because I love this movie. He is honestly just that good in this role. I would agree with you. I don't know why he didn't. And we have to, we have to mention it. I don't think we can talk about the character of Ben and the actor Dwayne Jones without mentioning the fact that this is a, he's African-American in a lead in a horror film. something that was virtually, unheard of during this time and it gives the film and i know i've heard many interviews and whatnot where like romero says he did not cast Dwayne jones because he was black he cast him because he was the best actor that auditioned for the role right which i can see why however the fact that you do have this black actor playing this character gives the film that political undertone that Romero likes to thread through his films so there and and by the time you get to the end of the film and the way the film ends it definitely is a huge gut punch to you but I do like the fact that the 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 fact that this is a black actor in this role but I do like the fact I will say this I think it was a smart choice that none of the characters in this film that are around Ben ever act like him being black is an issue race is never brought up uh, even with his conflict with uh cooper race is never an issue it's never brought up which is so surprising and i want to say refreshing for this time period to have a black character be this strong this in control and their race seem inconsequential on the surface like i said i do think the race plays into the political uh, statements that this film you, that you can pull from the film. Does that make sense? Oh, I mean, well, there, there's so much to build off of with this specific topic here. And I, I think you hit on a, a key thing for me, whether or not Romero did intentionally cast Dwayne Jones in the role of Ben. Um, and there's no way he didn't see the potential in that adding some heft to, to the overall storyline that's being, you know, unfolding before our eyes and eventually the conclusion that it comes to. Um, I mean, I'm sure he saw the potential there for sure to make an impact. 
the fact that he always chose to stand by the story that it was simply the fact that Dwayne Jones was the best actor is a really refreshing response to me because he could have easily rode atop that horse and said, oh, absolutely, I wanted to send a message and blah, 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 you know, which I mean, even still would have, you know, be impactful for the era. But the fact that they chose to never, ever make it any any bigger of a thing than they than than it is the fact that Dwayne Jones is fantastic in the role I mean I think that's fucking great and I think it's very progressive for that era and I think just watching this film and seeing that you know he is the only actor of color in the whole film the, all the ghouls are white everybody's white he's the only actor of color but you know what he commands this movie and I feel that everybody around him even for that era, there's no way that there was a, a level of respect on that set and acknowledgement of the fact that this man is just a force of nature. And I'm so happy that he got to leave an imprint playing a role like this and shifting the tide, you know, to a certain extent. I mean, this was unlike anything else that came out up to this point. And the fact that the race card was not a major playing factor here. I, I think that's what makes it so impactful. I agree with you. And I, I really think the film, the film's progressiveness lies in the relationships that the others have with Ben, because like I said, this was the sixties race, civil rights, huge, huge dominated that decade. And yet you have a film that is depicting the fact that there's a white people that are taking commands from this black man. It's not an issue. His race is never brought up. I, I find it. I find it refreshing. I find it refreshing. Yeah, it definitely was a major playing factor for the turning of the tide, at least within pop culture. I think a movie like this made um, made other filmmakers want to make ballsier choices, and 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 Romero always had a major uh, character within his film as portrayed by an actor of color. You know, he, he maintained that. He always gave opportunities for, for pivotal characters. Think of Dawn of the Dead, Ken Forey, you know, uh, same with Day of the Dead. I mean, and, and so I, I love Romero. I think that's why he resonates with me so much. The political context, like, that's important to me. These are things I want to be, uh, stories I want to be told, characters I want to see portrayed, uh, individuals who deserve to have the spotlight on them. Dwayne Jones was a fucking fantastic actor. And like I said earlier, I'm, I'm happy he has this role. He will never be forgotten. I mean, look, it's, it's this movie is already how many years old? It was 1968 when this came out. And his, his role in this film is still just as revered now as it was then. And, and that thrills me. Yeah. So after they, after he runs upstairs and, and finds the body himself, he goes back downstairs and they look outside uh, and there are, you know, two zombies shambling about. He asks her if, um, you know, have you seen any more of these things that are, are any of them in the house? And she's just, again, has a meltdown where she starts screaming. I don't know. And this is when, you know, Ben right now, if we didn't know that this dude was poised, confident in control, what he does next is going to solidify it for you. And he's been on screen for less than a minute. What does he do? These two fucking zombies are outside on the porch. He goes out there and fucking beats them to death with a crowbar. <laughs> like it's nothing. Like it's nothing. He just goes out and beats. Them. Yeah. And you're like, Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> like it's fucking nothing. <laughs> and I mean, this, 
this whole thing, this whole moment with Barbara, just like, she's like, what's happening? She's like, break it down. And so he's trying to keep the blonde woman calm. But then at the same time, he's also trying to kill these attackers. And he's, he's doing both fairly well. Um, but I think it's, the, I think it's the third ghoul, the one that approaches Barbara from, you know, when she's sitting there just melting down within the house that I find the most uh, effective in this sequence because there's this whole sequence where he he sees that this ghoul is about to fucking eat barbara and she just doesn't even know it and so he runs in he moves her and he you know manages to beat this ghoul to the ground and then he takes the crowbar and he jams it into the zombie's head and there's this fucking great shot of he pulls the crowbar out and the head goes back and Whatever they did to create the texture of this this wound on the, the ghoul's head, it, I mean, it looks like it has depth to it. It looks like a hole. It's a fucking great effect. For 1968, absolutely, absolutely. I do love Ben's like reaction and, and, and interactions with Barbara because you can tell he's completely exasperated that this woman is out of her mind, but he's trying to remain like respectful towards her and 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 nice and polite but you could tell he's like jesus fuck oh my god he's so he's like really trying to like maintain calm but she is just, she's pushing every button and i get it like she really is a lot to handle it's you couldn't get a more incompetent individual if you tried and and he's so capable but he's like he's like come on you got to throw me a bone here so this whole thing <laughs> happens he saves her and then there's this great moment where like he looks up and there's another zombie like there's another ghoul in a robe and he just full on comes at it and beats the thing in the eye and there's this really awesome reveal of the the ghoul covering its face and like backing up revealing what is now like five or six more of them closing in on the rear of the house. And I, I really love some of the moments where like, there's a few times that you see certain, certain things move aside or step aside or turn to reveal, like you said earlier, the number of zombies growing, it's like they're multiplying and they handle these moments very well. And I find this to be quite an effective sequence. Yeah. Well, I I do like also his response to these growing number of zombies is pulling the one he just bashed in the head out, out on the porch and setting it on fire <laughs> because oh, I love as that. we find out later, he had, he already knows that fire um, scares them off or is a deterrent. So he sets the one dead one on fire and all the other ones go running, moaning and running away. Uh, he goes back in the house and he's like, turn on all the lights uh, and we need to find some boards to board up the place. She's unresponsive. Of course, he's like, look, Please do this. We have to work together. So she like, you know, saunters into the living room. There's this little music box that starts to play that she becomes fixated with. Um, and Ben is, he is just getting it done. He's tearing doors, pantry doors down, busting fucking dressers and armoires apart. And I, <laughs> she comes in, fucking Barbara, she comes in carrying what looks to be a, a, a ruler. <laughs> it's this little boy. <laughs> Well, she's trying. Okay, she's trying. I, I a few things I want to touch on. I fucking love that music box moment because I think it Romero. I think the perk of Barbara in having a character like her is that he has multiple great moments in which he stylistically depicts her decline, her mental decline 
over the course of the movie. This moment with the music box, with this creepy, just like ding ding dong dong dong, like it's it's very much like in line with her mental state, just kind of going off the rails. And then later, he uses a lot of really good like zoom ins on her face, pushing in as like the realization of what's going on is settling in. So he does a lot of the. He makes a lot of really strong choices with how he films Barbara, Judith O'Day's Barbara. And I think this music box moment, though it's so unnecessary, it was a really great artistic choice. Uh, that being said, yes, yeah, she is completely incompetent in every way. And she does come back with a tiny armful of, of like little logs. And even Ben, like he looks at her, he's like, are you fucking kidding me? And then she like comes on over and she's like kind of trying to help. Like, she's like, I think I'm going to like put my hands up no, and hands up on the, the door and like, Oh, no, but I'm scared. And like, now I'm kind of just breaking down. And eventually he just like shoulders <laughs> past her. He just like rams her out of the way because she's literally just in his way. But I do feel like she's kind of trying to maintain poise to a certain extent, she's just failing miserably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Barbara is a definitely the a, a bless your heart character, right? I I love when she she goes up <laughs> and she puts that little piece of wood on the window, like it's really going to do something. Um, but he he's trying. God, he's trying to he's trying to engage with her. He's trying to get her to open up and kind of snap out of it. Um, he he tells her about being. Uh, at the diner, Beckman Diner, when he saw a semi um, being chased down the road by 10 or 15 of the zombies before it caught fire and crashed. And he was able to get out of the diner and um, kind of he was going to go help the driver before he realized these these things were ghouls. And as he wanted to go back into the diner to get people to help him, the diner got encircled by the zombies and they went in and he could do it. He could hear people screaming very, you know, he, he's telling this very matter of factly, but there is that hint of just disbelief and, 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 and terror to his voice, but he's keeping himself very calm and collected while he's telling her this. She, on the meantime, she, in the meantime, finally uh, tells him about their experience in the cemetery and she is getting extremely... Is this the monologue you delivered, Roger? Oh, f- we were driving in the cemetery. Johnny and me. Yes, I, I can, word for fucking word. I can give you the whole thing. I can give you the whole goddamn thing. He grabbed me. He ripped up my clothes. <laughs> um, she. Okay, so first, his monologue. Let me touch on this. I feel like I'm watching Masterclass Thespian, uh, like a monologue that you would see on like a Broadway stage. It's so well executed. He's so, again, commanding on camera, his vocal tone. This could be really boring. Like just listening to two people giving monologues, but like between his performance and uh, the, him going through the motions of like tearing this table apart and the sound of the wood breaking, there's so much great audio here that just feels very natural and authentic. Um, and it, it just, I feel like this doesn't ever get boring. In fact, it kind of sucks you in. And even with her monologue, like we saw this happen. We witnessed the scene and hearing her recollect it, like, I mean, you you feel for her. 
because she obviously has no fucking idea what's going on. And you're realizing just the kind of trauma that she had. She's realizing it. She's kind of realizing my, my brother is dead until she starts to think maybe he's not. And then she gets super, super fucking crazy. But I really think this monologue is some of her best acting in the film because she becomes pretty unhinged for a moment. She's shrieking. She's gripping herself, physical, animalistic, you know, gripping her hair. And she just... I believe it. I believe that this woman is just terrified. Um, and it all kind of culminates in this moment where, where he fucking punches her. And like, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about what a big fucking deal it is in 1968 to have a black man punch a white woman. That's exactly what I was thinking. And uh, yeah, definitely a big deal. Definitely something that you did not see nor expect to see and, and definitely something that was very um the 1950s early 60s that was a that was a no-no you did not do that so to see it depicted on on film so like just brazenly yeah she does she does slap at him first but he 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 knocks her out he knocks her out he punches her like he full on right hooks her to the jaw and then she like has this moment where she looks up and she's like oh and she just collapses and he's like oh shit like he's he acknowledges i think he just acknowledges oh fuck i just punched a woman in general i think it's i think it really again plays into the uh, political subtext of the film because you know the, the 1960s w- weren't that far from the 50s right and you had you had cases like Emmett Till that were still very prominent in the news. And that was a case of a little black boy being m- murdered brutally because he supposedly whistled at a white woman, right? And there was stuff that went on like that, stories about that all the time in the South. So to see this film just go there, definitely, definitely ahead of its time and groundbreaking. Yeah, well, and I, I, I feel like even in the shock of, of what just happened, you're still like, go bed too. <laughs> Cause you're like, you gotta get her under control. Like what he's doing is, is really for the best for her, for the betterment of both of them. Cause she is losing her shit and he doesn't want her running outside and getting her fucking ass eaten. So he like, you know, it's, it's the lesser of two evils, I guess he punches the woman, but you know what? Then he lays her down gently and, you know, opens, like, unbuttons her jacket just to, like, let her cool off. And even finds her a pair of shoes eventually. Like, he's very caring towards Barbara, aside from this one moment where he just finally fucking had enough. And I get it. But other than that, he is so caring towards her. And that's part of this relationship between the two of them that I really do appreciate. Like, I genuinely think that he sympathizes and wants to see her, you know, safe. And, and he tries his very best to keep her safe, even though he doesn't know her. There is that moment, even in the film, where he very he gets into her face and looks at her very sympathetically. He's like, "I know you're scared. I'm scared too, but we got to stay strong." He's just trying to keep control because he knows, yeah, having this hysterical woman in the house with him, with this going on, is not going to be a good thing. It does transition into the him turning on the radio and we getting this radio broadcast about mass murders taking place by unknown assailants. And as he's listening, he does build a fire. He sets a, a chair outside and sets it on fire to, again, deter the zombies from coming close to the house. And the radio broadcast continues to talk about how the president of the United States is going to convene a meeting. He, again, Ben is very resourceful. He is looking for anything he can find. He's going through closets upstairs. He does find a shotgun 
and a box of bullets. He finds Barb, yeah, those very sensible shoes to try to put on her. And she is just now she's just sitting on the couch doing nothing. I mean, he literally puts her shoes on, puts the shoes on her feet for her. Yeah, she's full on comatose right now. Let's just be clear. Like she is not responding. He's talking to her. He's trying to comfort her. And he's just getting a dead-eyed stare. But I, I do have to say that at this point, the, the radio is coming into play here soon. And the radio and the news footage that follows eventually later when they find the TV, such a pivotal aspect of this film. And watching it this time through, I really appreciated just how well this dialogue is written. Because in the background of all these moments is Ben's going around working through the house and Barbara's just sitting there like a fucking fool. Um, you hear so much exposition and it's so well-written. It's really well-written. I mean, it sounds like a fucking news broadcast of that era. Um, and, and part of what's so scary about this film is what you learn just through these broadcasts. Because there are times that's all you're hearing is the audio of this newsreel going on. And it's just filling you in on what's happening, up-to-date information. Um, and it's progressively more and more terrifying as it goes on because you start to learn just the severity of what's happening. And they're giving it to you. They're spoon-feeding it to you. But slowly, you keep having these new developments. I love how they incorporate the media into this. I do too. I do too. And yeah, you're right because it's this particular broadcast as Ben is watching or as Ben is searching the house for materials, we do cut back to the news broadcast that states that people, the people that are being murdered are being partially devoured. And you know, Barbara's listening to this by herself and she's totally like spaced out. And all of a sudden, Harry and Tom bust up from the basement. So we get introduced to these characters that have been in this basement the entire time. Ben comes in because, you know, he hears the commotion, he hears Barbara scream, and he's like, where'd you guys come from? You were in the basement the whole time. You had to have heard us making racket up here. And he's like, I didn't know if you were one of those zombie or one of these things or not. So we wanted to stay down there and be safe. So basically you have a major foe now for Ben in this Harry Cooper character immediately you want to punch him despicable and it's you know it's what's amazing is you're right you said this earlier you know the racial thing never comes up but from the moment you see this guy you still fucking hate him and you know he's a shit person and a hateful person and like he's played very well very well like i mean carl hardman again another actor who really didn't do a lot but like he perfectly encompasses this kind of just fucking shitty middle-class entitled asshole and we all know him we all know a guy like this and this is exactly how that guy would act if the world started to crumble around him he put himself first um and and i really love the way this moment's introduced too because again with barbara in her current state for the most part she's just sitting there looking wild-eyed but then like when moments there are moments where like certain things happen where she does have to react and it's it's funny to me that barbara is like still capable of responding, you know, in the moment. Like, she can still run. She can still respond. She can still scream. But when she's not doing that, she's just sitting there like a jello mold. But I do love how quickly she gets up off that fucking couch and (laughs) sprints for the doorway because she responds pretty fast. But, yeah, it is a great introduction to these two characters. Harry is the ultimate villain. And Tom is just a lamb. He's a sweet country bumpkin, and I like him very much. 
Oh, Tom is adorable. I like Tom a lot. But the thing about this Harry character and his whole shtick throughout the movie is the fact that he thinks that being in the basement is safer than being upstairs. Because if the things were to get in, they would only have really one way to get to them through the basement door. So if they barricaded it, their chances in Harry's mind, that makes it safer. Whereas Ben is arguing, no, if they get in, we are basically trapped down there. There's no way out. If we stay up here, we have the doors, we have the windows, we have all of these options. But if you barricade our, if we barricade ourselves in the basement, we're trapped. It's going to be a tomb. And it, and Tom chimes in and agrees with, uh, ben even he's like yeah that's he is right if there is if they get in at least we have places to run and at the same at the same time they're looking out the window and they're seeing even more zombies accumulating around the property including one that grabs ben from the window outside as he walks to check the back room a zombie's able to get in and get its hand in and grab him tom comes and like beats its hand away and ben shoots it and then you get uh, you get an exterior shot of just more of them coming. And there's a variety. There's that nude, that lovely nude one. There's the one in the hospital gown. There's the one that is hungry. So she picks that, what is it? A fucking June, June bug or something off of the, off the tree and eats it. <laughs> well, a few things. First of all, that's Marilyn Eastman in a sensible blonde wig who also plays Helen Cooper. Did you know that? That's oh, the same actress. I did not know what that. It, yeah, one of the great things about this movie is like everybody, for the most part, like even like major actors double as uh, like zombies or other characters, which is such like an indie thing. Like on every set I've ever been in, there's people playing multiple roles. Like um, the body at the top of the steps, when Ben moves the body, the 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 actual body when you're not seeing the uh, decomposed head is uh, Kyra Schoen, who is Karen Cooper, the little girl. So she doubled as the corpse for that. Like it's, it's just so cool how everybody came out to do like anything they could to help make this movie come to fruition. Um, the, the whole uh, sequence with the hands coming through the windows, I think is honestly a, a very well handled sequence down to that. Like, clay hand where tom is like chopping the fingers off it's sure it looks a little bit dated but it still looks pretty fucking good i gotta say and it, the whole build-up with ben blasting the, the the ghoul through the chest multiple times leading to the headshot leading to that massive reveal of all of the ghouls in the field approaching the house i mean we've, we've mentioned the term building dread so many times throughout the course of this film, but this moment right here is just terrifying, in my opinion. When you finally see just how many of these things are approaching from a distance, like it's just a matter of time before they get to that house. And the suspense is constantly kind of pumping after this point because you see it just how close they are. And there's a lot of them. And it's just filmed so well. It's such a great shot. I think it's iconic, this whole field sequence of the ghouls approaching the house. It, I think it's it holds up to this day. And I also find it rather effective how normal a lot of these ghouls look. I mean, there are certainly some that are mutilated and wounded, but a lot of them just look like average everyday people, which makes sense because these are freshly dead people. These aren't the walking dead zombies we see all the time that are rotting and decomposed. These are fresh corpses. 
And in a way, it makes it just as scary, if not scarier to me, because this does look like your next door neighbor, your friends, your family members. It looks like someone who was just standing next to you in a crowd, you know? I mean, it is an iconic scene. The scene of the, 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 the female zombie eating the bug is definitely one of probably the top three scenes from this film that I think people associate with it. It just accentuates that whole feeling of like these people are really in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, the black, if you're watching the film in black and white, just the starkness of the white gowns or the the nude body that you see out in this like vast black field as they're getting closer and closer to the house, it definitely creates that massive sense of dread and helplessness. So there's inside the house, there's this whole argument that keeps ensuing about, should they stay upstairs? Should they go downstairs? Ben gets fed up and he's like, you know what? Get in the fucking damn cellar and stay down there. Harry's like, you know what? You're insane. And Ben tells him, puts his foot down. He says, you know what? If you go down in that base, in that cellar, you are not getting anything from up here, period. So you better make your choice now. And this is when Harry mentions the fact that they have a sick kid. Ben's response is, well, it's too bad her dad's so fucking stupid then, huh? Tom decides to stay upstairs with Ben or with Ben and Barbara. So he calls up for his lovely girlfriend, Judy. Delicate Judy. I like Judy too. She's so lovely. She doesn't do a lot. You know why? Here's a tidbit for you. I'm going to give you some some, uh, Night of the Living Dead uh, history lessons here real fast. Um, So the characters of Tom and Judy in the original script very different. Also the character of Ben, and I should have touched on this earlier when you're talking about the casting. So Ben was originally written to be a white truck driver uh, who was like rough and rural and had like a, like, you know, kind of a, um, like a hillbilly kind of vibe. And then, you know, they had Dwayne Jones read for it and took it to a completely different take. And it was just so good that they gave him a part. And he said he wanted to play the character as more upper, like a, a clean cut uh, that was all him. That was all his decision. They let him just do what he wanted with that role. Um, so that character completely changed, the character of Ben. Um, but then the characters of Tom and Judy, Judith Ridley auditioned for Barbara. They gave it to Judith O'Day, but they really liked her. So there was a character in the script, Tom, who was originally written to be the elderly caretaker from the cemetery and a solo character, like addition. They changed it to a younger gentleman. And his his lovely girlfriend, Judy, was added into the script for Judith Ridley because they liked her a lot. So they created her character specifically for her. Um, and I think that's partially why her character out of everybody is she's definitely, like, the thinnest. They did add in that, like, lovely little scene between the two of them coming up here soon. But other than that, like, Judy's just kind of an afterthought. Um, but she's lovely to look at. And she does have a few of, like, the great moments here in the film. I can't deny it. No, I like her a lot, and she, they, her, and uh, Tom do get a kind of a tender little moment in the film, which I think is is nice. But they are sensible. Her and Tom are very sensible. So Tom calls her up, and uh, Harry goes back downstairs, and this is when we're introduced to his wife, Helen, right? And their poor child, My favorite, yeah, her poor child is is laying on a table down there, not looking right. And right away, you get the sense that these two have a horrible marriage and they hate each other. Oh, my God. The dialogue between these two is... (laughs) It's tense. (laughs) I would say she hates him. Oh, my God. And I I mean, 
I got to say it, girls acting in this scene, I think she's one of the strongest performers in this film. But like the, the fucking glares that she gives him and that whole little bit she has, she's like, that's important, isn't it? For, you know, being right and everyone else to be wrong. That whole thing she says to him, it's so like, she's just jabbing at him. But she's definitely the more likable of the two. I mean, she clearly cares about the people upstairs. She calls him out on it. She, she says to him, these people are not our enemies. You know, these these are not, the, this is not what we need to worry about. Outside, that is what we need to worry about. Helen is fucking sensible, but she's rather meek overall, um, up until the very end at least. She's, she's rather meek. He does intimidate her a bit. She still tries to stand up to him, and I do appreciate that about her. But um, there's definitely like an abusive energy between the two of them, and it comes out quite a bit. Oh, you can tell like that they, I think it's more like her realizing that she is married to this fucking asshole. He comes down. He's like, ah, he's like, I'll be right. I'm right. They'll see. And that's when she makes that comment about that's what's important, right? Being right. She's also pissed off when she finds out that there's a radio up there and that he boarded them downstairs. Oh my God. I love when she's like, there's a radio upstairs and you bother us down here. <laughs> she gets fucking pissed off at him. I love it. And then her little comment, we may not enjoy living together, but dying together isn't going to solve anything. What a line, though. What a good fucking line is that? Uh, so Helen is like, you know, fuck this. We're going to go upstairs. I want to hear what I want to I want to check out this radio. So she calls down to Judy to go downstairs to watch their daughter so that uh, Harry and her can go upstairs. And Harry agrees begrudgingly. He's not thrilled about it, but he goes. Helen, bless her how she's trying to engage with Barbara who is now fixated on this doily that she sees on the side of the couch. Harry still fucking bitching about the upstairs being a death, uh, death trap. Uh, this place is a death trap and, and, and fucking Helen. She's like, then why don't you help then? <laughs> yeah. Got, Helen's a boss ass bitch. I love her. Um, I, I do want to point out one little thing when they're coming upstairs, when she's calling up to, to Judy to come downstairs, um, did you notice the jump cut? You know, the, like the infamous jump cut here in the stairwell with Helen? No, I'd have to watch it again. There is a very obvious jump cut. And um, the reason for that is the original cut of the movie, apparently there was another zombie field sequence that was about three times bigger than what we saw. And the um, when the film was getting cut down for editor, or uh, when it was getting edited down for um, the distribution company, for some reason that was cut and that footage was lost. And that was one thing that Romero always like lamented because it was actually some of his favorite footage. He said, you know, if you thought that sequence that we saw of the zombies was epic, you, I mean, this thing like, blew that out of the water. Uh, and they ended up cutting it. And so there's this jarring uh jump cut there of Helen when she's calling up the steps where you see like really slightly you see Harry's um, head turn all of a sudden and uh, that's because there is apparently another zombie sequence that got removed but like what a bummer god I would love to see that fucking footage oh that sucks I, I guess I'd have to watch it again I did not notice the um, the jump cut but I uh, ew, that's interesting see see listeners all Roger is just a encyclopedia of knowledge about this film I, I try <laughs> <laughs> So Ben and Tom bring in the TV and they're able to turn on the TV and the broadcast comes on. And I do like, again, the multimedia aspect of this film, I think was also maybe ahead of its time as well, incorporating so strongly into the plot, not only the radio broadcasts, but now also news broadcasts. 
Um, and so we see the the broadcast, the, the broadcaster on the TV reiterating the fact that the ghouls are eating their victims. And there is a new alert that people who have recently died are coming back to life and killing. Rescue stations have been set up. Uh, if people are out there and they're close to a rescue station, they should get to the closest one. Space experts are being consulted. And there's the mention of the first mention of the satellite that was destroyed because it was and it because it contains a high amount of radiation. The Venus probe. Yeah, so this is the first uh, sort of explanation that we are given or that is hinted for why the dead are coming back to life and it has to do with radiation. And we get even a clip uh, an interview clip with a scientist. Oh, I mean, some of this news footage isn't fucking fantastic, though. Like, that whole White House sequence they do, or like, you know, they're like, <laughs> where they're in Washington. It's not the White House, but they're like, you know, in the middle of fucking Washington, D.C. You know they full-on just guerrilla filmmaking, like, jumped out and did that, right? Like, like, they literally, that's George Romero as the news reporter. They literally just jumped out of the car, filmed it, one take it, and, and, and drove away. And they used that footage. Like, they completely guerrilla filmmaking, they completely just grassroot indie pulled this out of their asses and they somehow managed to make this sequence look fucking legit as fuck i mean i think all of this footage looks quite good the news footage feels very realistic that reporter the sound of his voice chili billy cardiel who is the father of uh, laurie cardiel who is the lead in day of the dead so that was her connection to the film but yeah, but I mean, it's just it's so fucking good. I love all of this news footage. And the thing I really like when they touch on the Venus probe, it comes up with the scientists for a little bit, and but they still don't like smother you with it. They give you an idea that this could be what it is, but they're never like 100% like that's what it is. You know, it's not like they're confident. They're just suspecting it. And I really like that air of like mystery around it. Like, is that for sure what's causing this? It sounds like it, but like, what actually is going on? You know, what's causing this? Yeah, I do like the fact that there is some explanation hinted at, and it actually comes even more full circle by the end of the film in terms of like what is causing it. It is, it is radiation. Ben heard that the rescue station is, um, there's a rescue station in Willard and he's like, Willard, that's only about 17 miles away. We could get there, but we need to get gas so I can get my truck going. So they know that there's a gas pump out by the barn of this farmhouse. Um, and there's a little news segment that's playing that I feel like is put in there for a specific reason, but the other, like the characters aren't really paying that close of attention to the TV now because they're talking about the, um, the gas pump. And it is the fact that the scientist is, is saying that anybody that's been injured by one of these ghouls needs to get help immediately. Um, so Ben's like, you know, go back downstairs with the kid. Um, and again, the news, the newscast is continuing to, to giving all this information. Cadavers coming back to life. The bodies, when you kill them, they must be burned immediately. So Ben comes up with this plan. He asks if there's any kerosene and Tom's like, yeah, I think there's a whole you know thing of it downstairs. So they're going to make Molotov cocktails to distract the zombies so that they can run out and get the truck and the gas pump, unlock the gas pump. The gas pump is locked. So, and they found the key conveniently. Everything's kind of coming together. They're starting to form a little plan. 
when we are the we the audience are like okay yes they're gonna especially like when they find the key to the gas pump and they they're, they're making these fire bombs to throw we're like yes okay this is might may have a happy ending yeah yeah i um i like that they all kind of for a moment they sound like they're kind of on the same page even harry like he's reluctant but he is open to stepping up and assisting and he does he is the one that throws the molotov cocktails um i do want to mention one little moment that when that doctor is on the news talking about he starts bringing up the idea of like the injuries people who have been injured uh, by the ghouls have to be like watched and treated immediately. And you see this moment where Helen like notices it. I do like that. I I feel like Helen is very in denial about what's happening with her child. Like if you look at the situation as it unfolds, Karen, her daughter is, is clearly sick. Like not just like, like <laughs> I'm sick, but like barely co- like conscious running a fever, all of the things you don't want to s- experience after being bitten by something you know um and helen is definitely in denial and i do appreciate that as ben learns more about this he is like oh fuck this is the last thing we need but i do like this little moment where you see helen notice this on the on the news as the others are talking because they are distracted by this plan that they're coming up with but it's a good plan i feel like you know for the most part this plan really should have worked (laughs) like this should have been successful should have should have it looks like it's gonna be right for for a moment um but unfortunately you know it doesn't pan out like they planned before they go out and go through with the plan this is the moment i was talking about with tom and judy they do get this like sweet moment where she asks if they're doing the right thing and why he has to go out and he tells her they've got to do something because they may not be in the they may not be safe in the house much longer. And it's a brief moment, but it's kind of the only moment we get of these two interacting with each other in a in a kind of a close range with no other characters around. Judy takes Barbara downstairs and Ben and Tom unboard the door. So here they are. They're going to go through with this. Um Harry's upstairs throwing the cocktails out the window at the zombies. The, the, the zombies get distracted. A few of them catch on fire, which is kind of a cool effect for 1968. Oh, God, yeah. This whole sequence, I mean, honestly, the whole truck scene is, is pretty fucking phenomenal. And it goes pretty hard for the era. And it kind of goes to show what's possible with like an indie, little indie budget. Because it's just very well executed. There's a ton of action. People are literally burning. People are being shot. Judy, who just had that lovely dialogue sequence that where she started off a little wooden, by the end of it, I thought she was quite lovely. Um, both she and Tom, they needed that moment before what happens here. You had to feel something for them. But now, all of a sudden, she just decides to, I don't know, join in on the fun and book from the house. So she like runs out, jumps in the truck, throwing everything out of whack. Judy is the reason things go awry here. Yeah, because Tom gets out of the house and he gets to the truck and Ben is covering him with the gun. So they are good to go. But what happens is Judy decides she wants to go with. So she literally runs out of the house, which causes, I mean, that throws a huge wrench in the plan because now Ben has to not only try to cover, you know, Tom in the truck. Now he's having to worry about Judy who's running behind so she can get in the um, the bed of the truck. They Judy gets in the truck with them. Ben's in the back. And they get to the gas pump. Uh, And the key that they grabbed will not work. Tom is trying his hardest to unlock it and it's not working. So what does 
Bendu, which is probably not a great idea either because it's gas, he shoots the lock off, uh, which causes... Yeah, it's definitely not a good no. idea. <laughs> which it, it causes uh, Tom to like grab the, the, the pump, but as he's grabbing it, he sprays gas everywhere um, and starts a fire. And so, you know, Ben here is trying to put out the fire. The zombies have caught wind of what's going on. So they're coming towards Ben. Tom just gets in the truck, gets Judy in the truck and and is driving away, pulling away, realizing or not realizing that the truck is on fire. And (laughs) these two are, (laughs) these two are blown up. It's this scene is, is quite shocking for a lot of reasons. It's getting, the, the stakes are high now. Trucks burning, gasoline is everywhere. I mean, like, they're just spraying it like water. Zombies are encircling. Ben is sensibly trying to, like, blot out, like, a, a line of fire leading up to the gas pump with, like, a cloth. And so, yeah, they drive the truck away. Ben even chastises them. He's like, what the fuck are you doing, man? Get out of the truck. And then, like, as they're trying to get out of the vehicle, sensible Judy goes to get out, and he Tom's like, what the fuck's wrong? And she's, she says... My jacket's caught. <laughs> Let me try that again. My jacket's caught. And, and Tom gets back in to help her. And yes, explosion. And these two cherubs are blown up in this fiery uh, explosion that is kind of like unexpected. Because when you think about horror, and I mean, at least up to this point, I would say within the genre, um, when you think of like kind of the rules it played by, up through the 60s, the, the beautiful young couple would never be the first to go. You know, this film completely like plays against the rules. And the fact that they like take out Tom and Judy, like the pretty, all American, wholesome couple that you would think would be like the Steve McQueen kind of scenario here where he rises up and saves the day. It's the complete opposite. They're the, fir- the first to go. And it really plays against your expectations. This is one thing that this movie uh, starts to do very well at this point and continues to do very well throughout the rest of the movie. Uh, it it kind of takes your expectations of the genre and it just shakes it the fuck up and says, let's throw that out the window. We're going to do whatever the fuck we want as of this point moving forward. Oh, for sure. This movie takes some massive risks that the genre hadn't seen done. Ben is able to fight his way back to the house. And as he gets there, it's locked and he can't get in. And Harry hears him knocking, but is it like going to just go downstairs and leave him out there? And Ben, being the no-nonsense dude, kicks the door down and gets in. Oh my god, that sequence where he just like glares at him. I know. He's like, I know which I love it. And that whole run to the house too. Let's let's talk about this first let's split second Troy, because I really think this is one of the the most uh, suspenseful scenes in the movie. After oh, yeah. the explosion, when Ben realizes that he is alone in the middle of this field with a shit ton of fucking zombies and nothing but a torch. I mean you see just how many of these things are surrounding him at this point. And um, it, again, it feels like very high stakes. The fact he gets back to the house, it's with, just with the skin of his teeth. And then, yeah, he has to fucking eyeball this fucker who pretty much just tried to, you know, sacrifice this guy to those zombies so he could have his way. Oof, I love the tension that forms here between these two characters. Oh, it's it's thick now. Ben has to, bu- has to re-board the door up because he broke it down. And Harry 
helps him. Uh, I feel because he feels guilty about what he did, or at least he doesn't want the shit kicked out of him, but he actually gets the shit kicked out of him. Ben punches him, throws him on the couch. It's like, I ought to drag you out there and feed you to those things. And all Harry can do is just sit there wide eyed terror on his face. But you know, how satisfying it is, is well, it's very me? satisfying, but like, come on, you're literally going to let this guy be eaten to death or be eaten because you want to have the, the satisfaction of being right. It just shows you what a shitty fucking person he is. We get this iconic cut to the zombies feasting off the burned bodies of Tom and Judy. And I can only imagine how this played in 1968. Now it's not so shocking, but I can imagine people in 1968 were losing their fucking minds to see these zombies fighting over intestines and eating femurs and livers. And it's just up to this point, the movie has been, I mean, it's been relatively tame. I mean, people have been shot you know, you see skeletal heads at the top of staircases, but like it's been relatively tame. And then all of a sudden you've got this truck explosion and even the explosion itself is relatively tame. It's not like you see the burning bodies flailing around. You just see the truck blow up. But then all of a fucking sudden you have this sequence in which all of these zombies surround the, the burning remains of this truck and start to like rip apart the corpses from with inside of it and not just the visual here because you still don't see a ton right away it's the audio it's the sound of the joints popping and dislocating the flesh tearing like you can hear the clicking of the bone snapping that to me is what really sells the scene and then of course what follows afterwards the actual feasting sequence like the consumption of the flesh that's wild. That scene, I mean, it still is pretty shocking. The scene of the, the single shot of the one zombie fighting over the intestines and the audio of him snarling. I mean, this, I think, set the groundwork for the shock factor that we get from Gore today. You know, this really kind of set the the level of expectations that we have. Like, if you're going to go big, go fucking big. And this movie chose to go big, especially for that era. And it pays off. It's it's a great scene, and again, I can't imagine how it played in theaters in 1968. The, the unsuspecting audience watching this probably, like I said, lost their fucking minds. Yeah, you know, uh, Roger um, Ebert gave this movie a really negative review when it first came out, and he was talking about how he saw it in the theater. And at that time, like the rating system didn't exist, so he's like, "I'm in this theater. There's kids, you know, around me and watching the movie. And the first half of the movie, it's you know, they're enjoying it. They're laughing along with it they think it's fun they think it's exciting and then he said like then there's a turning point where this stopped being fun and started being legitimately terrifying and these kids had no idea what they're getting into and i and i remember him saying in this piece he's like i looked over and saw a kid who was there alone without his parents just weeping just crying because of what he was watching because they yeah they had no idea they're going into something so terrifying for and for that time i'm sure that fucked people up So after this scene, Helen comes up from the basement to ask about another broadcast that's supposed to happen at three o'clock. Barbara is like three o'clock. That's only 10 minutes away. We only have 10 minutes to wait. She's like rambling. She's trying to, at least she's talking, I guess at this point. 
Ben asks where the nearest town is, and Helen's like, you know, I don't, I don't know. We were just trying to get uh, to the hotel for a night before we were, um, before we were attacked by the, these zombies, and our car was overturned. So Ben's like, okay, so where's your car? And Harry's like, Harry says, we can't get there. It's over a mile away, and our we have a sick daughter. Ben asks, well, what? Okay, what's well, so what happened to your daughter? And they respond by saying that she was grabbed by one of those things and bit on the arm. And of course, Ben is like, Jesus Christ, you know, we don't know what kind of diseases these things could carry. How does she look? And Helen says, well, she can't walk. She can't go anywhere. There's no way we could get a mile to the car with her. And so the radio comes on and we find out that the ghouls can be killed by a shot to the head or a bash to the head and they need to be burned immediately. And this is when it's blatantly, it's blatantly stated that the brains have been reactivated by radiation. So if you kill the brain, you kill the ghoul. And then we get this pleasant chief McClellan. Oh yes. Yes. Chief McClellan. Iconic. (laughs) <laughs> talking about all what he's doing like it's nothing. Like he's just talking about what he ate for breakfast. And just him and his good old boys out in the fields. Definitely good old boys, yes. Yeah. yeah. I really like the introduction of like this yet this other layer of uh, characters that comes about in the, like the final 15, 20 minutes. Because again, this is a very you know low budget film. And you're right, it's restricted to very few locations. So at least the news footage does continue to take you out to the of the outside world. You're getting glimpses of what's going on in the outside world. And I really appreciate seeing that here because um, it does add to the scope of the movie. Um, as they're watching this news footage, Barbara keeps making comments about, uh, you know, you won't be able to start the car. Johnny has the keys. <laughs> and, and like, they're kind of blowing her off. And she's like, you won't be able to start it. And then they're finally like, what, you have a car? Like, you actually have a car. You're not just batshit. And and there's this whole little moment where Ben is be- finally becoming increasingly desperate. I mean, between the ghouls outside, the, the knowledge he now has about Karen having been bitten. I do like that even he's starting to become very panicked. Because he's realizing just how, how desperate times are right now. And they start to make this kind of plan about possibly making a run for Barbara's car and trying to start it. But before they can really get to it, the power goes out. And shifts the film into a whole new like tone and, and intensity, right? Because the ghouls now, they're getting, they're getting smart. They outside, we see them picking up rocks, picking up logs, and they are approaching the house. And in fact, one of the ghouls even like throws the a rock through the window. So they are trying now to get in. So everyone's trying to keep them out. All Cooper can think about is he wants the gun. He tells Helen, I need to get that gun. And she says, is that the only thing you're worried about right now? And he's like, look, that man just got two people killed. We need to get the gun and we need to get out of here. And I mean, the zombies are, the, the ghouls are coming in. They're, they're busting through the windows. They're busting through the door. Um, Cooper's just standing there watching. Even his wife is being like grabbed by him and he's just standing there. And Ben's like, come on, you have to help. So he runs over to Ben. What ends up happening though, is Ben drops the shotgun. And instead of like helping his wife or helping Ben do anything, he picks up the shotgun and points it at Ben. He's like, you want to stay up here now? You stay up here. Ben, not having any of it. (laughs) 
He takes one of the boards from the door and launches it at Harry, knocks the gun out of his hand, gets runs over, gets the gun, and in a very, I think, shocking moment, and everyone's like, you can see Harry's eyes go wide. Uh, Helen's looking over it about about what's ready to happen. Ben pulls the gun on Harry and shoots him in the fucking stomach. Shoots Harry. Shoots Harry in the stomach. Yeah, it's pretty wild. So, I mean, that was pretty shocking to me. But, I mean, I, can, I can't say that Harry doesn't deserve it, right? I mean... He's just, he's, this is the second time he's basically tried to kill Ben. So what would you do? Are you going to trust this fucker anymore? Oh no. I think like he definitely got what was coming to him. And there's even a moment where he's like trying to get Helen to go downstairs and she's like, no, even she's like, no, I'm going to stay and help Ben. Um, and Harry just can't process the fact that people won't listen to him. Like that's really what it comes down to is he just wants to have like control. And, and so it is very satisfying to see, you know, him meet his demise the way it happens. It is shocking that Ben shoots him in the gut. What a horrible way to die. Um, but it is a welcome relief to, to you, the viewer, because Harry truly is one of the most uh, despicable villains of, of horror movie history, dare I say. He he ha- he is able to stumble down in the basement and he, he drops dead right at the foot of Karen's, the table that she's laying on. Um, Helen is being like grabbed. Like there's probably four or five of the things that are grabbing her through the boarded window. Barbara finally, because she's just been sitting on the couch watching this all unfold. Finally, for some reason she gets the courage or the wherewithal to get up and help Helen get away. But once that, what ends up happening is the zombies grab her instead. Well, first Helen books it to the basement. So Helen gets downstairs because Barbara's still up there helping Ben for a bit. When Barbara snaps two for this last bit, she really gives it her all. I got to give her that. At least she goes out swinging. Helen, thinking that she's fleeing to safety, runs down the staircase to the basement only to find the visual of her now undead daughter hovering over top her recently deceased husband eating the flesh from what is now the nub of his arm. It is a very graphic visual. You are not prepared for it. If you've never seen this before, it hits you kind of like a freight train. This image is, again, very shocking. Um, Not like what we've seen up to this point. It is very graphic. It's very graphic. And you have to think again, if we keep going back to the time, 1968, okay, to see a visual of a child eating its parent in 1968, pushing some boundaries and then what happens next is that she's like oh karen oh baby and karen like drops the piece of meat she's chewing and puts her hands out and is walking towards helen helen trips and falls on the ground the zombie karen picks up a garden trowel and proceeds to stab her mother to death with this garden trowel and it goes on for quite a while like I didn't remember the scene, the stabbing scene being as long as it is, but it's pretty long and pretty like you hear the the the, the noise the trial's making as it's stabbing, blood's getting on the wall, and there's those screams, those distorted screams of Helen that are just like gut wrenching. 
And there's like oh, a yeah. mo- there's like a moment where you think she's like her head is laying still and you think she's dead, but then all of a sudden she twitches her head the other way in pain and screams again. It's quite chilling and again, quite I would say quite graphic for this time period. Again, you're watching a child kill her mother brutally. This again had to have fucked with audiences in that time. Well, and I think the one thing that's so impressive about this is you never actually see the the trowel penetrate flesh. Like it's all done through shadow play um, and Bosco chocolate syrup because that's what was used for the blood. Um, and and like you know close-ups of Helen's face reacting in agony. And it really is the, those screams. That's what really makes this um, because the the audio here this kind of warped manipulated shrieks you've heard other films try to recapture this moment this sound before and i don't think there's any that have really uh created a sound quite as horrifying as what you hear in this moment because for not showing much of anything it is truly terrifying it is i I dare say the most memorable scene from the film it is the scene that i would say defines this film and is when you when you look to the history books and think of the most shocking scene from this film, it is the scene in which the little girl stabs her mother to death. I mean, that's what people say. Um, and, and it sticks with you. And it is brutal. And you're right, it does go on for a while. And Helen's a character that up to this point, like, has been very likable. Like, I think Helen's a, a great character. So to see her meet such a violent demise at the hands of the child that she has been wanting to ensure uh, gets to safety this whole time her main concern has been her daughter and now she's too overwhelmed to even defend herself she literally just lets the child kill her because she can't do anything about it uh it's, it's a very sad moment to be honest yeah you're right it really is it really is a sad sad moment it's so effective it's so memorable again i go back to my what my mother said i think this was the scene that she said really 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 scared her as a kid when she first saw this movie and you can see why it's just everything the screams the lighting the the trowel seeing the trowel go up and down and those no stabbing noises it's very disturbing meanwhile upstairs barbara's trying her her hardest but who shows up johnny johnny god another bit of irony mm-hmm but what a great fucking twist is this? Yeah, I really like this moment. I mean, I don't like the fact that Barbara dies. I, I, I do, even though you know she's kind of an annoying character, or you know, not the most likable character that you want to root for. I didn't want to see her die because she is so like childlike and helpless. Well, and at this point, she's trying. Like she's fucking trying. She's right up there with Ben. Like you know, trying to keep these things out and and i think one of the reasons i i feel so much for her in this moment is because it's like she's finally snapped to and she's conscious and aware of what's happening and she's giving it her all only for like this momentary pause where again the one thing she's been seeking this whole time a way to save her brother a way to find her brother there he is he's one of these things and and that moment that moment of hesitation is enough to be her fate. It's very unfortunate. And the scene is quite horrific. Yeah. She gets dragged out by Johnny. And then uh, as he pulls her out of the window, a whole herd of them 
descend on her and she's just screaming, help me, help me. And Ben, he gets there too late. There's nothing he can do. So Barbara is dragged away and, and we don't see what happens to her, but we can only imagine, right? Oh my God. I mean, like part of what makes it so scary is when you watch this shot. Cause I, I mean, honestly, this is my favorite death in the film because it is again, the last thing you would anticipate from a movie of the genre, at least within this time, you know, within the, this era of the sixties, um, the beautiful blonde, she, you know, she, they're always the helpless victim, but they always survive with the aid of the, of the handsome white man. You know, that's normally how this plays out. And, um, for her to meet such a brutal demise, yes, you don't see it, but like you see her little face just fade away under all those hands. Like, you know, she's getting torn apart and, um, she's the last character you would expect to perish. You really anticipate that she will survive. And little known fact, original script, she does. Barbara was written to survive. It wasn't until they were filming last minute that they decided to change it because they thought it would be shocking. In the script, Barbara gets pulled downstairs with Ben into the basement. He goes upstairs and she stays downstairs while everything happens. And she's found at the end of the movie. And she was supposed to be part of all of that freeze frame footage, the photos. Like she was supposed to survive. They changed it last minute. Um, I hate that she dies because I, I feel for her character, but I think it was for the betterment of the film for the shock factor alone. I did not know that she was supposed to survive and I totally agree with you. Yes. It's a shocking moment. It's a sad moment. Uh, I don't want to see her die, but again, for the way, for everything that this movie has done thus far, that has been unexpected, you know, boundary pushing. I think it was definitely the right decision for them to make. Um, you know, it, it, it's almost like, you know, she's the first character, she's the first character we're introduced to in the film. So we do really think it's really her story. Yes, Ben becomes a prominent figure, but we're still kind of attached to Barbara and her journey because it is the first character that we were introduced to in the film. And yeah, for her just to be pulled away outside by her brother, nonetheless, and just let our imaginations go in terms of what happens to her. It's very, very chilling. And it just it causes chaos because now the, the zombies basically get in that in the house they come in the front door um ben has no choice but to try to go down in the basement and as he goes down there zom or ghoul karen comes up and tries to grab him and bite him and he's able to throw her off of him and he goes downstairs to the basement barricades himself in and goes down and as he's down there he sees cooper dead on the floor not for long though because his eyes pop open and he starts to stand up Starts to starts to get up. Ben shoots him. He sees Helen's dead body over there with the garden trial still embedded in her. I think that was a good touch. And he watches her for a moment, and then it cuts away. And you know, you, you, we 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 kind of the audience know what to expect because when it cuts back the second time, her eyes finally do pop open, and he shoots her. And upstairs, the ghouls are trying to get in the house are in the basement. They're pounding on the basement door. The barricade's holding pretty well, but they kind of, they get distracted or bored. I don't know. Did I miss something? Because they just, maybe they get bored. So they just like, say, okay, fuck it. We're just going to go somewhere else. So they turn around and leave. Well, I think the big thing, the big thing here to take away, Troy, is the fact that, you know, we love Ben and he is definitely the hero in this film. And Harriet was very bad at communicating things. 
But at the end of the day, the shocking the shock factor stems from the fact that Harry was Harry right. was yeah. right the whole time. Harry was right. They can't get in. The door is stable enough. They can't get in. And so, you know, as much as you want to cheer Ben on and support him because he stands for good things, um, and he he does so in a way that makes you want to root for him, he was wrong. You know, if they would have listened to Harry, I mean, obviously Karen would have become a zombie and they would have had to kill her. But other than that, you know, um, if they would have held up in that in that basement, you know, they could have easily made it through the night. That's the yeah, that's the biggest irony of the film. And I was I was certainly going to mention that the fact that Harry has been right the entire film. And while what Ben says makes sense, had made sense the entire time. Look, we, we don't want to get trapped down there. There's only one. There's only one way out. If they get in, we're we're dead. I, I don't. You know, I don't know what I would have done. But at the end of the day, they both made really good arguments. But it, yeah, Harry was right the entire time. Uh, it cuts to morning. And, you know, it's crickets are chirping. It's bright outside. We see a helicopter going by. And then we see a whole group of volunteers that are out scouring the fields for these zombies. And they're they're shooting the they're shooting the ghouls and burning them in this giant burn pile. And they see the farmhouse and they approach and they're shooting the zombies that are kind of straggling out by the farmhouse. Ben hears this from the basement. So he gets up, casually goes upstairs or timidly goes upstairs, opens the door, opens the basement door and kind of enters the living room, goes to the window to see, you know, what, what's going on outside. And it, his shadow or his movement in the window attracts one of the volunteers who immediately says, look, there's one in that house and is given the order to shoot it. Right between the eyes. Don't miss. And Ben is shot dead right there. I can't think of a single moment in a film that leaves you feeling more of a punch to the gut than than this moment manages to do. I mean, you have invested your time and energy and and support in this character because he's been a stand-up guy. You know, he is a stand-up guy. Ben is a fine individual who stands for good things and you have you know rooted him on this whole time and he makes it you know he makes it through the night um and and through some really shocking and traumatizing things you know and then you have this whole moment where he you know he peeks out the window and you have this like kind of like long pause of him just kind of trying to get a grasp of what's going on and then bam shot through the forehead he's dead and you like for, for, for being, you know, a first time viewer watching this, I can't imagine, you know, no matter what you think of the film up to this point, I can't imagine getting to this point and not feeling some kind of just like, are you fucking kidding me? Um, sensation from it, you know, um, because it really, it, it, it is such a blow. It's such a blow. And to lose this character is so unfortunate, but God, does it leave an impact and it, and it, and you know, it leaves you thinking long after viewing the film. Uh, and it's such a conversation piece, and people talk about this ending so much because there's so much to unpack with it. And you go, you do get the montage of of images, and some of them include like Ben being dragged to the pile of of dead ghouls with like a hook in his back and thrown on the pile. It's all very brutal and very bleak. And yes, if this ending 
doesn't affect you or, or really make you think. I mean, wow. Wow. You know, and how irresponsible of, of the, the, the volunteers just to shoot something that moves. Right. Yeah. But also like, God, it feels like it makes a lot of fucking sense when you look at like what's going on and the crowd of people out there that are doing this. Like, again, don't tell me that moments of this weren't, weren't stylized and structured to look like some of these, um, kind of Southern mobs that they had at the time. And a lot of these like vigilante kind of situations, I'm sure there are aspects of it that were more intentional than they let on to, to stylize this, to look a certain way down to Ben's body being, uh, you know, carried to the bonfire through still frames, those gritty photographs. I mean, that looks like something right out of an, out of a news magazine from that era. It looks like something like you mentioned Emmett Till earlier, you know, like it, 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 it's very intentional the way this was handled. And it leaves a huge impact on the viewer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting that the film takes place in Pennsylvania, and you know, which is north. Obviously, if you know a thing about the Civil War, the North and the South. The south was the Confederacy. The North freed the slaves. My point is, it's really interesting. The film takes place in the, in in Pennsylvania. However, these this 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 particular sheriff and his group of volunteers that he has out scouring the fields and shooting anything that moves they come off as being very good old boy alabamish like even with a tinge of a southern draw it's really interesting and yeah you're right this this these final moments and these final flashes of images feel like just it feels like they come right out of like a documentary about lynchings in mississippi i mean it's 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 that type of of imagery and that strong of imagery and it it could not have been accidental definitely a a statement there's a lot of political subtext there that you we could dissect for hours i'm sure this film has been dissected for political subtext and we've barely even touched on it super impactful ending you know when you when you tie it into what was going on during this era i mean it just so so bleak depressing but also impactful memorable yeah the ending of this film is definitely unforgettable i think i mean the whole film in general but especially the ending i think really set the groundwork for other filmmakers especially independent filmmakers to come afterwards but not just independent filmmakers if you look at like the jordan peels who's very openly praised the works of romero um, the filmmakers who, who've opted to take risks, political risks, you know, there are a lot of films that have been ballsy enough to tackle and touch on certain topics that you don't necessarily think would maybe fit into the genre. An example I'll give you, we covered this one, The Taking of Deborah Logan, delving so deep into like, you know, the mentality of, of, of an individual suffering from Alzheimer's and there, you know, the kind of... Um, decline that comes with that and the taboo and like all the discrimination that's experienced how those people are treated i mean that's something that very much had a a message to the movie that went well beyond the horror of the movie it's how these people how their lives change um when they go through this experience um i think movies like that very much have uh, a lot of thanks uh towards uh, night of the living dead uh and and respect that needs to be uh, shown towards this title because it really did take risks unlike any other film before it. It 
chose to push the boundaries, not just as a piece of horror cinema, but as you said, like as a, as a piece of, of um, uh, political commentary on the times. And it, it's such a beautiful, delicate balance of the two, and it succeeds in both areas. And that's why this is such a landmark piece of cinema because it's it's a it's a great horror film but it's a great story and it's got great characters and there's so much more to it than just the violence and the gore there is so much to unpack you could have a thesis after thesis after thesis on, on this movie and why it works and why it ticks and what makes it work and yeah the balls the movie has to kill off all the characters that you have that we the audience have uh, come to sympathize with, to have an attachment with. I mean, it's it's very much the opposite of what film filmmakers and audiences were doing and expecting during this time frame. You know, fil- cinema. You know, in the '60s, was still following a pretty basic pattern, right? You know, of of plot. You had you had a protagonist. The protagonist goes through some shit. The protagonist at the end of the of the film overcomes it. That's what we expect. Right, there were films that did sort of uh, manipulate that story arc a little bit. Like I think about Psycho. You know, the film starts with Janet Lee who gets killed off. You know, twenty minutes into the film, but we also then, but then we shift and we have a different pro- protagonist in Lila Loomis who is able to then, what does she do with the help of Sam, overcome the the villain? But to have the audience form a attachment to the characters such as Barbara as, as whiny and kind of pointless and not pointless, but as worthless as she was and and kind of what she was doing in the film in terms of helping everyone survive with Ben, this take charge, no nonsense. We're going to get shit done. I'm staying cool. I'm staying calm. I'm staying collected. We could relate to him, right? We all would be like, yes, we want to, if we, if this, if I find myself in a situation like this, I need a Ben with me. Or I will be the Ben. We all so we have attachments to these characters, and then just to kill them off so brutally, and yeah, I don't know if a film had done that before, particularly to like to this extent. So yeah, the influence it's had on on filmmaking in general, indie filmmaking, I think, it is monumental. Whether people want to know it or not, it, it this film is massively influential. And, you know, it also is public domain, which is why it's always appears in all these other horror movies, right? I think it's probably the the one horror movie that we see playing on TV in horror movies <laughs> more than any other. It is. It is the most featured film in like, uh, in, uh, you know, if a film is showing something on a television, uh, it is the, the film that is featured more than any other movie. It's because it's in the public domain, but it's also because it's extremely recognizable. It's in Halloween. I mean, it's in, it's in everything, you know, and, and, um, and, it, and whenever it is shown, it always adds something to that moment too, because it, it does have such a great autumnal vibe to it. I mean, like, you know, we're coming out of the Halloween season, but th- this movie is, is so perfect for for Halloween and the time period around it. It feels autumnal. It's got a, a, a chill to the air kind of vibe to it, um, and I, I really do think it's like a you know it's it's a kind of a Halloween staple within my household. Obviously, that goes without saying. I do love that, like you know this this film has in so many ways been woven into our culture. It's kind of an un- unavoidable title. I think it's kind of like a rite of passage as a horror movie fan that you have to see this movie. Um, and I think if you can look past the the fact that it is somewhat dated, 
when you look to the amount of influence this has had on, on cinema that has followed, I mean, it's undeniable. It's undeniable that this movie set the groundwork for so many films to come after it. Definitely influential, uh, definitely a masterpiece. It's a film that is going to definitely withstand the test of time, no matter how many, uh, you know, and it was, it does have a remake, the Tom Savini remake that tried to do something a little bit different. Yeah. They did something a little bit different with the Barbara character. I think they recognized the, the flaw in the Barbara character in the original film and and definitely tried to remedy that, Um, you know, but it's, Definitely. I mean, God, I mean, what's there to say about it? What's there to say about it? We've talked about it for two hours. We know it's your favorite film of all time. I mean, is there any other final little thoughts, tidbits that you could share? I mean, I, I'm just excited that we got to talk about it because it was one of those things that like, you know, I've got plenty of films that I've sat down and taken series of notes and just kind of rattle off note after note and kind of hit on key points. But for this, for me, I eventually, I just put my notes down and just, had a conversation with you because it really does come naturally to me, my love for this title. And um, I mean, I like that we got to share some of like the kind of the cool behind the scenes facts about this movie that I don't think, you know, everyone's going to know. I mean, there's plenty more, trust me. I'm a wealth of knowledge. I'm always down to talk Night of the Living Dead. Um, But yeah, I I really love the Savini remake. There's some re-envisionings I can't stand. There's some that I cherish. Um, I am somebody who's a big enough fan that I'll watch anybody's interpretation of it because I, I like I enjoy that about remakes. To be honest, not some not everybody does. You know, not everyone's going to enjoy a remake. I'm fine with it. It doesn't mean the originals any less good. You know, if anything, a bad remake just makes the original look better. But there are several retellings of this film I very much enjoy. There's several I think are offensive, <laughs> and I think Savini's is the, is the cream of the crop when it comes to the, the re-envisionings. But overall, I think that. I can't think of many films in general that have such a feeling of, of dread, building dread. We've mentioned that term multiple times over the course of this uh, review, and I think that this film just masters it. There is always a sense of impending doom. Uh, and that is why it is a staple. I love the movie. Uh, I'm glad we got to cover it. It gave me the opportunity to to watch it again. I hadn't seen it for for a while. I mean, it's a film that I, you know, if I'm scrolling through the channels and it's on a specific channel, uh, even though you know who really watches cable anymore, everything is about streaming. But if it if it were on, I would watch it. I would watch it. I enjoy the film quite a bit. I recognize its impact and its influence on the film the film industry as a whole. So kudos to George Romero. I mean, he definitely is the grandfather of the zombie film beginning with this film, um, following it up with Dawn of the dead, who some would argue is better than this. I know a lot of people that, that hold Dawn of the dead very, very close to their heart. Also a great film night of the living dead. We, we got to cover it. We got to cover your favorite film. Hopefully we, we did it justice. We talked about some stuff that, you know, people are going to enjoy hearing oh i think so if you I, don't yeah. if you I, don't i don't if you know don't get the, the fuck out, <laughs> <laughs> the fuck out. exactly it's, it's night of the living yeah. it's night of the living God dead. Damn it. <laughs> but yeah so um that's night of the living dead yay we covered it for november like i said next month since it's december we will be covering my favorite horror film of all time along with some other Christmas themed goodies last month, last December. And it doesn't even seem like it's been a year, Roger. Does it? Not at all. Remember when we did last December, we did black Christmas remake to all the good nights. That that does not seem like a year ago. It seems like just, just days ago, but here we are. It does. 
I remember, I can vividly remember sitting there recording the Black Christmas remake episode. Oh, yeah. And it literally feels like a, a month good one. ago. That's how fast time of, but we're going to have some Christmas themed goodies for you. <laughs> and I guess I'll reveal. Well, first we got to get through November. We got to get through November. So I guess I'll reveal my, uh, our next pick, right? I mean, we might, you know, I had three, I have three titles. We have three titles that we're going to talk about this month. And I, I finally kind of settled on the order that I wanted to talk to the, uh, talk about them in. And so we might as well follow up one iconic, influential horror film with another hugely influential, impactful, successful horror film. One of which also is very much recognized for creating its own subgenre, which we can argue films did it before, but this is the one that gets all the credit because it's the most successful and the most recognizable. So we are covering, and this is going to be a good conversation because you've already mentioned to me that you're not really a fan of this film. And it's actually one of my top five favorite films of all of horror films of all time. So this will be fun why i want to talk about it right away next week we are covering the 1999 classic in my opinion indie horror film one of the most successful indie horror films of all time the blair witch project we're going to give it another shot is what i'm thinking we're going to give it another (laughs) shot did you you hear the did you hear the silence after i said that title did you hear that like 30 seconds of silence he's like uh i think there's two camps with this movie I think there's the people that love it, which I would say is the bigger camp. I'll give you credit. And I think there's also a a camp that finds it very boring. And I've been in that camp. I'm willing to be swayed. It's been a long time since I've seen this movie. A long time. Um, Like, I just haven't revisited it in a very long time. Well, watch it again. It's our next. It's our next pick. I wanted to follow. I felt it just naturally followed up Night of the Living Dead quite nicely because, again, they both hugely successful independent films that are responsible for launching their own subgenres of films. Right. So I thought, okay, oh, yeah. perfect, perfect companion. So yeah, Roger. Don, so it's going to be an interesting conversation. It's going to be one that you're not going to want to miss. So next week, tune in. We're traveling to Burkittsville. To interview some local town folk. And we are going to have a mighty frightening time discussing the Blair Witch Project. That we are. That we are. What a good double billing, too, Troy. Good call on that title. Definitely, definitely. So, guys, if you like our if you if you're enjoying the podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating. Check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast. We have 16 full-length episodes up, including our recent one on Jason Takes Manhattan. Which was and, about, which, and the best nude stuff and the best scenes. the best the top three best nude scenes is up too so <laughs> who can say no to that i listened to that today and i was like oh this is a good one i really i really like that episode. i'm gonna we gotta promote that one because i think it might get some interest but yeah so check it out with other than that let us know your comments your thoughts on none of the living dead and we will see you next week with the blair witch project yes all right good night good night